This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, assalamu alaikum, welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns, I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, and it's my pleasure, as ever, to present this episode in which I do not chat with a special guest, but I do bring you a special guest with whom I have chatted. I'll also play a couple of songs and recommend a couple of resources, but first, a couple of words on the Canterbury Socialist Society. So the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is of course a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, publishes the biannual magazine The Commonweal, and supports industrial and other actions in and outside of Ōtautahi. The CSS is affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, or the NZFSS, and in October 2023, the CSS presented the first NZFSS conference, about which I'll say more in just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, the CSS organised a benefit concert for Palestine, which raised $5,000 for the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. You can visit socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about and join the CSS or another socialist society local to you. You can also send an email to Canterbury Socialist Society at gmail.com. One more quick note before I get into things proper. This episode is not about the current genocide in Palestine, although I do intend to dedicate an episode of the end of history to the Israeli occupation of Palestine in the very near future. That said, the CSS unequivocally denounces Israeli actions in Palestine since Saturday the 7th of October 2023 at least. Members of the CSS have been attending rolling rallies for Palestine in Ōtautahi, and we encourage listeners to do the same wherever they are. Please visit the Palestine Solidarity Network Aotearoa website, psna.nz, to learn more about the situation in Palestine and campaigns for a free Palestine. So I mentioned that the CSS recently presented the first NZFSS conference. Over three days, members of the NZFSS enjoyed the launch of the third edition of the Commonweal, Socialist Society branch reports and discussions of the Aotearoa activist and journalist Bruce Jessen, Art and Socialism, and Socialism at the Level of Local Government. Members of the NZFSS and the public also enjoyed a keynote lecture by Daniel Lopez titled Socialism on the Ballot – how the Victorian Socialists Found a Mass Audience. Daniel is a commissioning editor for the socialist magazine Jacobin and an executive member of the Victorian Socialists. He is a lecturer at La Trobe University in Melbourne and the author of Lukash, Praxis and the Absolute. Daniel is a keen fisher and a lovely house guest and I'm so pleased to introduce the recorded version of his lecture, Socialism on the Ballot, How the Victorian Socialists Found a Mass Audience. 
please enjoy, and I'll be back in about 40 minutes with music, reviews, and more. G'day, guys. Um, absolutely delighted to be here. You guys are great. And um, I'm really impressed with what you've built, by the way. Um, I think the political culture of this organisation is, is sensational, and I think it's the kind of thing that the far left needs a lot more of. Um, okay, so Victorian socialists. Um, well, the story really does go back to when I was 15. Um, I shan't be giving you the blow-by-blow -blow account of my life from that moment on. Um, but the first meeting I went to after calling up the socialists in the phone book was a dingy little room underneath Trades Hall um, in Melbourne, which is the uh, union building. And there would have been 15 people there, and that organisation had about 50 members nationally. Um, and that was in 2002. And like in those days, um, socialism, even on the left, was discredited, unpopular, you know, marginal. Um, the atmosphere was very, very different. Um, jump forward uh, to last year and the Victorian Socialists' uh, state election campaign. Um, the experience was absolutely different. Um, I was handing out leaflets uh, at a booth in Carlton, which is in the inner north of Melbourne, and you know, it, it, it confirmed what we've been doing for a very long time. Um, let's see, the other campaigners, like the Liberals were not having a good day. Um, no one was taking their leaflets. I mean, it's a left-wing electorate. They also lost hard in that election. Um, the Labor guys were also not having that good a time. Uh, the Labor Party, I'll say more about the Labor Party in a second, but it's probably the most right-wing social democratic party in the world. Um, and so there was the Greens and the Socialists. And of course, the Greens uh, back home have a great deal of uh, voter recognition and loyalty. Um, but really, I think that was the first election uh, that I experienced where we had as much recognition as the Greens. Um, we were overstaffed massively. We had way too many people for what we needed, and we, that was the case on every polling booth uh, that we were handing out leaflets on. And just, you know, person after person would come up and, and make a beeline for us and take the Victorian Socialist leaflet, often with the Greens leaflet, because we have preferential voting. You can vote for both. Um, and it was lovely. So I went home that evening, you know, feeling good, had a shower, changed, went to the election night party that we had. Uh, and on the way, I got a message from my mate who's, uh, she runs the advertising for the Victorian Greens. And her message was, it's looking good for you guys tonight. Um, so when I got there at the election night party, there's a good 200 of us. And we were sort of aghast at the results that we saw because it's by far and away the best result that we've um, ever gotten. Um, so I'll read out some statistics. But first, a Lenin quote. Um, <laughs> where there are not thousands, but millions. That is where serious politics begins. Well, we didn't get millions, we got more than thousands, so we're half serious. Um, anyway, so our, uh, it was the most ambitious campaign we'd run, um, and over 60,000 people voted for Victorian socialists uh, across the north and west metropolitan areas of Melbourne. Um, I should say something very briefly about Melbourne's political geography. Uh, the north-south divide, man, that's a real thing. The south is whack. Um, it'll, we'll go down there eventually, but like, you know, seriously. Um, it's, it's got a real Sydney energy and it's, it, you know, it's the, only, it's the only place where the Liberals still get elected. Um, whereas the inner north and then further out north, that's further out north is Labor Heartland, rusted on Labor Heartland. There's a street, Bell Street, um, a big road that sort of that runs through the north. Uh, they call it the hipster-proof fence. Um, the Greens have never managed to break out above the hipster-proof fence. Uh, but in some of the electorates that way, we got... Uh, where did we get? In Thomastown and Broadmeadows, which are extremely working-class uh, migrant neighbourhoods, uh, we got 8.3% of the vote. And we overtook the Greens significantly in those areas. The, 
uh, west of Melbourne is demographically quite similar. It's working class, it's very migrant. Uh, Footscray is one of the inner suburbs, but then it goes far further out with a lot of industry. Um, and in, that, in those areas, we won over 6% in Laverdon, Kororoit, St Albans. Uh, we got 10% in Footscray, uh, which is where uh, Victorian Socialist has a councillor, George Jokera. I'll say a little bit more about him in a second. Um, in the inner north, uh, the combined socialist vote, I say that because there's a socialist councillor in Marybeck Council, uh, Sue Bolton, who's not Vic Socialist, but she, we ran complementary campaigns. Uh, the combined socialist vote was 9.7%. Um, and we got an average upper house vote of 4% and an average vote of 6.5% uh, across the lower house electorates that we contested, um, and which is, you know, far exceeds what we'd done previously. Um, and that was the product of years and years of building and organising and, and campaigning. Um, at some individual polling booths, we got as much as 20% of the vote. Um, you know, often those would have been booths near public housing um, or in particular migrant communities where we have a base or near particular industries where um, we have a base or a relationship with the unions involved. So I want to try and give you a sense of how we did that. I guess there's a couple of events that um, happened in the lead up to the 2022 uh, state election that gives you a bit of a sense of it. Um, and this also communicates that Victorian Socialist is more than just an electoral outfit. Um, we're becoming a party. I'll say more about what I mean by that in a second, um, but we campaign between elections. We do union work, we attend rallies, we organise rallies, we do community organising, we do education, um, and I think some of those things uh, in the election results I just read out, they, they pay off. Uh, for example, uh, in the West, there was a Liberal Party meeting with Maura Deening, who was no longer a Liberal Party member because she went to a Nazi rally and she, the Liberal Party was like, yeah, she just can't do that. And she refused to apologise and so they you know, threw her out. Um, but we, at that point she was a Liberal Party member, um, Liberals being the Conservatives, um, you know, a hard anti-abortion warrior, hard right kind of person. Um, we held a picket there and a, a whole number of people from the local Pakistani community joined that picket. Um, they joined it partly because of our record in, in organising against racism out west and partly because they recognised our um, pro-Palestine work. Um, you know, that was something that word went through that community. Um, or in 2019, uh, there was a land fire, um, a landfill fire, sorry, at Kalba in the west. Um, the billionaire Barrow family built a tip, and from the very beginning, uh, residents were concerned that this tip was a health, sa like a health safety liability, uh, and then it caught fire in 2019, and it blanketed the entire area in toxic smoke. Um, it, it, it smelled like, like burning meat, basically. Um, and Victorian Socialists, well, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, that's the agency that governs these things, uh, sided with the owners of the tip. Um, but Vic Socialists organised a campaign against that alongside locals. Um, you know, we're not trying to take credit for the whole thing. Um, it was really a local driven campaign, but we, we joined it, we participated in the rallies, we helped to promote them, all of those kinds of things. And as a result of that campaign, ultimately the Victorian Environmental Protection Agency charged the Barrow Group, um, fined them millions and millions of dollars, uh, and they've had their licence revoked. Um, so that's a small win that we were part of making um, in 2019. Or sooner before the election, the Maribyrnong River flooded. There are two rivers that go through Melbourne, the Yarra and the Maribyrnong. Um, the Maribyrnong runs through Footscray. Um, and there's the Flemington Racecourse, uh, which for most of the, it, Melbourne's history has acted as a floodplain. When the Maribyrnong floods, the water's gone to the Flemington Racecourse. Uh, of course, what did they do? I think 10 years ago, I can't remember. They built a flood wall because they want to protect the racecourse. Where did the waters go? Into residents' homes. Um, and so, like, a whole number of neighbourhood blocks were inundated with water, people lost a lot of their property, and Victorian Socialist members volunteered straight away to help with the clean-up um, in the lead-up to that. Um, there were strikes out west that we, were part that we participated in. There was a picket uh, at the Kinos um, Petro uh, Petrochemical Company where we have a member who is the shop steward. 
um, who's also been a candidate previously, and VS uh, mobilised to support the picket there. Um, the same at the Pampas fa uh, factory, which they produce food. Um, we, uh, again, mobilised to support their picket and to support um, that strike. That's in the west. Uh, in the north, um, there's a major issue around the Preston market. It's all very detailed, local Melbourne stuff, but there's a lesson in that. Um, you've got to pay attention to local issues. You've got to pay deep attention to those issues because that is what cuts through with people. Um, I love the Preston market because I, I was going there since I was a kid. Um, like, it's, it's magnificent. Like, it's cheap. You get a slice of pizza as big as your head. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's really working class. And, like, it services the whole um, outer north of Melbourne. Um, and, you know, of course, it's owned by developers who want to knock it down and put up a fucking Westfield shopping mall. And everyone hates it. That is the issue in that part of the world. And the interesting point, the Greens, I'll say more about them in a second, they're a very mixed party. In Darabin, I like to think of them as the human resources Greens. Like, they're not so much tree Tories, like, you know, Tories on bikes. Um, you know, they're a bit that way, but like, they're more the kinds of Greens that, you know, sort of very calmly do an you know, acknowledgement of country in a meeting and then explain why council's going to have to lay off 30% of council staff because of budgetary requirements. Uh, but of course, you know, they welcome refugees to the area, they, you know, have Pride Day, etc., etc. So socially progressive, but neoliberal. Um, they effectively back the developers' plans to knock down the market. Um, same with the Labor Party. So we're not the only group that campaigned to save the Labor, uh, the um, Preston market. Um, <laughs> there's no saving the Labor Party. <laughs> so we channeled off with them. Um, uh, Gaetano Greco is a local uh, candidate out there who's he's absolutely superb. He's about that high. Uh, he wears a beret and a silk cravat and like he will help your nonna get onto Centrelink, which is the welfare agency, and everyone fucking loves him as a result of that. Um, and he's you know he's been a huge part of the Preston market campaign, but so has VS. And the thing that VS can offer is numbers. When there's a rally, we can turn up in force. Like, when we need to leaflet, we can do leafleting in the entire area. And so, you know, the combined vote, Gaetano, Greco and us, we came so close to toppling the Labor candidate who ended up winning. Uh, this Nathan Lambert guy, who's just one of these Melbourne University to, like, staffer for an MP, and he wears R.M. Williams boots and immaculate shirts and, like, my God, he's nobody. Um, you know, and purely on the strength of the Preston Market campaign. Um, and these kinds of things get, you, people know these things, they recognise these things because people care about that issue and that's a major touchstone. Um, earlier on um, there are other things I could go into, uh, for example during the pandemic um, when Daniel Andrews, the Labor Premier, locked down housing estates, uh, which was you know, cruel and, and unnecessary. Um, you know, major housing towers were just locked down and obviously you know, there's, it's profoundly racist too because it, it's overwhelmingly non-white people that live in those. He locked those down entirely and Victorian socialists mobilised um, against that and to try and collect donations and solidarity for the people inside. You know, these kinds of things are remembered. And so these are the kinds of things I think that fed into our vote um, in the uh, state election. Now, obviously it's not just those kinds of political things um, or events. There was a ground campaign. This is really important. Um, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about how we developed some of these things in a sec. Um, over about uh, four months leading into the election, we had 400 volunteers who would dedicate, on average, six hours a week to door knocking or other types of campaigning. Um, you don't get that out of nowhere. You know, I'll talk about how that can be trained in a second. And the thing is, uh, with what I understand about you guys, I think your membership is actually kind of higher than the membership of the socialist groups that formed Victorian Socialists in the first place. So it's achievable. Um, but those people, uh, those 400 volunteers, it was not their first rodeo. They had, well, for some it must have been, but like for most of them, they had done electoral campaigns before. They were experienced as door knockers. They'd learned how to do it. Um, so we had 400 in the lead up to the election. And on election day itself, we had 1,000 people staffing booths across, uh, across Melbourne. 
Um, only the Greens came close in terms of their activist numbers. And there's an insight in that about politics as it is today. I imagine it's quite similar here, but back home, um, the mass base of the major parties has basically disappeared. Um, you know, it, it's wild, but like we massively, massively out-campaigned Labor. Um, obviously, we don't have their money, and we don't have their. You know, we don't. We're not in the state. We don't have those resources to draw on. But like, we have so many more members and volunteers. Like, like, let me give you a sense of it. Labor Party branch meetings, where they sometimes have uh, votes to pre-select a candidate, dead people vote. Like, it's monumentally corrupt. But they don't have a mass membership anymore. So one of the things that we were able to do, it was a ground campaign. We didn't have a lot of money. But with the numbers and with activists that we've trained over years, we were able to do it. We knocked on uh, 188,568 uh, 188, doors um, over the course of the um, election campaign. Um, and to give you a sense of what that looks like, uh, we, we like to organise all-in door knocks. So on a Saturday morning, or you know, as it gets close to the election every day, um, 50, maybe 100 socialists will meet up in a local park or some other facility that can um, deal with that. There'll be a briefing, from the, usually from the candidate. Um, there'll be a bit of discussion about the pitch. Uh, you'll distribute leaflets, and each person, um, maybe groups of two, will get a map, which is like basically a suburban block. That's your door knock. You go and door knock that suburban block. Yeah? Um, and you know, the experience of door knocking is, it's, it's great. It's a kind of political activism that's just, there, there aren't other types of political activism like it really, because there's no other way that you can meet such a broad spectrum of the population. Um, you know, I don't want to say that door knocking is the only thing to do. Obviously there's heaps of other things to do and they all have their place. Um, but like door knocking, the, num the types of people I've met, old Greek guys who are like, politicians are all crooks, you know, but I vote for you, you seem nice. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. Or like, you know, I, one time uh, just after the pandemic, I met someone who worked uh, a woman who worked in an aged care facility, but one of the state-owned aged care facilities, of which there are some. Um, uh, across Australia, the private aged care facilities were devastated by the pandemic. Like, like thousands and thousands of elderly people died alone um, because they were just absolutely unprepared because this is how the market works, this is how the private market works. And I spoke to her and she was livid that this had happened, like disgusted, sick of, you know, to the depths of her stomach that this had happened. And so the fact that we want to nationalise aged care, like that was it. You know, and she was previously a Labor voter, but she's sick of it. Um, you know, and we encounter that sentiment so often. Um, you encounter young people who are Greens voters, um, but who are politically left, and who are open to an argument that's more to the left of the Greens. And because we have preferential voting, it's easy to say, look, you can vote the Greens too, but if you want a party that actually stands for what you believe in, um, ending capitalism, like indigenous land rights, indigenous sovereignty, um, solidarity with Palestine, uh, getting rid of casual work, you know, these kinds of things, you can preference us one. And like that cuts through, like it's a, that's a, a more political section of the electorate. Um, so we did this you know, over and over and over a number of years. We distributed leaflets to every household in the electorate, partly through letterboxing, which is, um, you know, that's one of the easiest forms of activism. You just go for a walk, put some leaflets in letterboxes, and also because we have some mates that work in Australia Post. Um, so that was good. Um, we got a real discount rate on you know, mass mail out. Um, you know, we weren't meant to talk about that at the time, but it's been a while since, and it's another country, so that's fine. Um, we distributed thousands of uh, core flute signs. Um, so when you knock on a door and the response is favourable, like obviously you also get people that are like, absolutely not, no, I own investment properties, I'm not going to vote socialist. And you're like, very good, we live in a democracy, move on. Um, but you know, you meet someone that's interested in voting for you and that's sympathetic to the message. So the next thing you ask is, would you like to have a, a sign on, in your front lawn? We'll organise someone to come and put it up. And people say yes. So we distributed thousands and thousands of signs um, across the North and the West, um, and to the point where we had as much of a visual presence um, as Labor and as the Greens uh, doing that. 
It also helped that our candidates were overwhelmingly young, uh, working class and diverse. Like one of the things we wanted to do, we wanted to choose candidates that reflected the suburbs in which they were standing as candidates. Um, and that's, that's really important. Like for example in Brunswick, where I live, uh, the Greens candidate for a while now is this old mate, he's pushing 60, he's white as a driven snow and he's an architect and you know, you can picture it. Um, like this is just not that compelling. Like, the Greens can do better than that. They do up in Brisbane. But, like, if, you know, you're a renter in Brunswick, like, you don't want to vote for someone who looks like your landlord. Um, you know, it's fairly obvious. Whereas our candidates um, look quite different. I'll hand up a couple of these, actually. These are some examples of our material. Um, one going... This one goes back to our first election campaign. Um, excuse the printing, I'm poorly organised. Um, this goes back to the... Um, that's federal election campaign prior to the state election. And that's from our last state election campaign. So it gives you a sense of the kinds of material we put out and also the kinds of people that we, we want to stand as candidates. Um, and what else? Experience. So like with door knocking, like that's a big part of the experience we've gained. The one thing I would really hammer home about door knocking is the first thing you must do is listen. You do not turn up at someone's door and say, can I tell you about my Lord and Saviour, Leon Trotsky? Um, you turn up at someone's door and you say, you know, uh, I'm from Victorian Socialists, do you have a moment to talk about the election? What issues are important to you? You know, I'd like to know, you know, what issues affect you, your neighbours, your family, etc. And then you find a way to relate our program and our policies to that. Um, but you listen first and foremost. Um, and that kind of connection is, is invaluable and it's a skill to learn um, to try and engage in those kinds of conversations. And then finally, the, the, other, the other part of the infrastructure, really good data management. Like, I cannot stress that enough. Um, you begin with Google Sheets. The first election campaign we did, I, I, I ran a tight Google Sheet. Um, you know, I was a district, um, a district coordinator in, in Preston where I lived at the time. Um, but since then, this is something to think about maybe for the future. Um, we've bought the same software as the Greens use, and it's powerful software. Like, every time we do a door knock, um, ideally, that member or that volunteer records the result, and so we have a quite a detailed picture of what the electorates look like, where is an area of strength for us, where we get a high vote, um, so on and so forth. So the infrastructure of these things matters a lot. A lot of attention has to be paid for it. There's also the question of the uh, platform that we took into the state election last year. Um, I'll give you a couple of indicative um, policies. I think overwhelmingly the most uh, popular policy, it's quite populist, but it's also good, um, uh, every member on parliament, in parliament of parliament should uh, be paid no more than a sixth-year nurse, which is $87,000. Um, pay politicians the same as an average worker. No other party will match that policy. Like, they just won't. And then beyond this, we say our candidates pledge that they will not accept more than that as a salary and that they will donate the extra to community campaigns, um, you know, community organisations, etc. This cuts through because people understand the politicians are crooks, self-interested, corrupt, um, disconnected from ordinary people like them. And our argument is, if you're going to be in Parliament, um, you have to have a life that is similar to the people that you are representing. If you do not, you can't really represent them if you live an entirely different life. And that's, I think, also, maybe I'll say something about this later. You know, in the socialist tradition, there's a, um, there's a legitimate, entirely legitimate concern with reformism and with compromising as a result of going into Parliament. One of the most basic mechanisms that makes that happen, I think, is privilege. Um, and parliamentarians being paid a lot more and having access to power. Um, so simply our MPs will not have that. Um, we also require MPs to divest themselves of any... Uh, well, we, won't, we, won't pre we won't let you be a member if you have investment properties. So, you know, the Greens cannot say that. Um, you know, the Greens are progressive in some other ways, but uh, their last leader um, owned a winery. <laughs> Think of that what you will. Um, you know, in terms of what else do we have? Uh, 
you know, we're unconditionally for uh, First Nations rights, for Indigenous sovereignty. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a whole series of policies I'll go through there. The Victorian Socialist website has this in detail. We put together a policy suite. Um, it took a long time because I was part of writing it. One of the advantages of being an editor is you know a very little bit about a lot of things. So <laughs> you're a good person to draft a policy suite. Um, uh, what else? Um, with housing. Um, we wanted to apply a luxury properties tax on the top 1% of most valuable re residences in Victoria, and that tax should be at 5% of their last sale price. And at a rough estimate, there's about 25,000 such properties, and that they're worth on average $10 million. That would raise $12.5 billion every year. Um, that's your public housing fund right there. Like, that solves a lot of problems. Um, the key with policy is to find things... We're not going maximum full, you know, communism now stuff. Like, that's... You know, I'm going to get there. Um, you know, you choose policies that push in the right direction, but that relate to people's grievances, to people's um, commitments, um, and that are immediately plausible and logical and sensible, but absolutely will not be introduced by the major parties because of their commitment to capitalism. Um, one really obvious one, Crown Casino in Melbourne, and also uh, the yacht clubs owned by the private schools and the rich universities. They have a deal with the government. They pay $1 per year rent for prime... Uh, riverside land on which they operate. Well, that's straightforward. Charge them market rent. Um, and, you know, you raise a lot of money. And who will defend, like, Crown Casino paying $1 rent? It's nuts. It's nuts. Um, what else? Uh, with housing. Public housing is a huge issue. Um, housing is an enormous issue in Australia, as I imagine it is here. Um, the housing crisis is, is out of control. Um, you know, housing is simply unattainable for people of, of my generation and, and below, unless you inherit. Um, and this is creating a far more unequal society um, and a far more stressful and precarious society. Um, so we wanted to strengthen laws governing um, rentals, basically uh, giving you know, renters all power. Um, but also we want to in, uh, introduce punitive taxes on vacant properties um, and a very uh, punitive sliding scale on investment properties, effectively to price landlords out. Um, and if you're not a landlord, you agree with this. It's straightforward. Because then what will we do? Um, our, our proposal is to create a Victorian public housing authority, which is chartered to provide uh, high-quality public housing on a not-for-profit basis, and that could create uh, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, that could build 15,000 new public housing units per year, and 15,000 shared, uh, shared ownership residences per year. That basically, what that means is um, you sell them at way below market cost to people um, who therefore can buy a house like that. Um, again, an overwhelmingly straightforward policy that so many people agree with. Um, Nationalisation. We'll bring, bring things back into private ownership is a, is a big part of our policy platform. Um, electricity, uh, public transport, um, you know, you name it. Um, so, you, you know, bills are too high. We have a solution for that. It's called nationalising electricity. Um, making public transport free. These things are deeply appealing. Um, what else? I could go into it more, but I don't think that's... You get the idea and you can certainly look it up on our website. Um, these policies went across very well. Um, you know, you don't necessarily rattle through every policy when you're talking to someone, you find the thing that they care about. You, know, you talk to a university worker, I possibly speak from experience here, and you say that you want to introduce regulations on the university such that they can only have a maximum of 5% of their workforce casual. Great, that's good. Um, that's, that's going to help you get through to that person. Um, what else? Well, I guess the last thing I'd like to say about the state uh, campaign that we uh, waged 
more than just the solidarity work that we did in the lead up to it that I began with, uh, the fact that we had a councillor, um, there are a number of socialist councillors in Melbourne, uh, there's Steve Jolly in Yarra, there's Sue Bolton in um, Brunswick, um, and there's George Drocera in Footscray, and I want to talk about him. Uh, George Drocera, we had him elected in 2020, um, Chilean socialist, like he's a great guy, like he goes way back, um, you know, really hardworking, really friendly, non-dogmatic guy. Um, he's lived in that area for a very long time. He's known and respected, um, participates in community organisations, etc. Um, one of the first initiatives that he pushed for at the council level, and this is small scale compared to like, you know, all power to the Soviets, but it matters to people. Um, there's a big Vietnamese population over there and he ensured that Vietnamese is now taught at three high schools in Footscray. Um, there's also a, a massive problem with racialised policing in Footscray because there's a large African population there and the police are, are brutally racist. Like every other year there's a murder and it's the cops that have done it. Um, so he's organised rallies and stalls around the Footscray station which is one of the sites of uh, over-policing and um, racist harassment. He's defended social housing um, projects against NIMBY objectors who you know, basically don't want the poor to move in into lower property prices. Um, and he fought against the privatisation of council-owned aged care. And all of these things came together, like this, we'd never run in Footscray before. So we went from 0% to 10%. Like, that's why, because of George Jokera. And I think there's a, a deeper point there. It sort of refers to what I was saying before about political parties and the dissolution of their traditional base. Um, there's a really good essay that I always recommend by um, Peter Mayer called Ruling the Void. In the neoliberal period, um, the connections between parties and civil society, you know, unions for the left, um, you know, country Women's Association, the churches to the right, these disintegrate and dissolve and politicians are removed and they don't have any connection with the community um, and they don't do anything that's good. So people have, when, when you do have someone, for example, an independent like Gaetano Greco or a socialist like George Jokera, who is seen to put real time and effort into fighting for people to make things better, this cuts through. It makes people notice and it proves far more than any argument that you could make that we're sincere. And so, you know, we get votes from people who I'm sure are not socialists, but who vote for us because they understand that we will fight for them and we'll fight with them. Um, and so proving those kinds of things in practice uh, with elect, uh, elected um, representatives is profoundly important. Okay, so all of that together, uh, it was the most significant vote for an explicitly socialist party, I think, since the Communist Party had someone elected in the very early 50s in Queensland. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's something that we're proud of. I'm exactly halfway through, so this is perfect. Great, good. Okay, so like now I want to talk about the story of how we set up Victorian socialists, um, and you know, where, and where it came from. Um, 2018 is when the party was born, um, and you know, as you'll remember, in those days, Christ, it was devastating when Corbyn didn't win. Like, I really felt quite sad about that one. Um, obviously, Sanders as well. But like, you know, that that brought back socialism. Um, that brought back a mass audience for socialism. Their two movements. There's obviously a lot to be said about Sanders and Corbyn and about the projects that they represented. Um, my position was uh, enthusiastic but critical support. Um, but they popularised the idea of socialism with hundreds of thousands of people um, in the United States and in the UK. And you know, we thought that there was a basis for something like that in Australia. Um, and this is also conditioned by the cost of living crisis, which has accelerated since. Um, but you know, it's a very basic Marxist point. The harder life gets, um, the more people are going to question capitalism and, and the way things work. And so. Um, this is where the proposal came from, that environment. Now, as well, it's important, I think, to take stock of the other political parties, briefly. 
Um, you've got the Labor Party, which uh, introduced neoliberalism in Australia, much like the New Zealand Labor Party. Um, Bob Hawke was the PM that did that with the Prices and Incomes Accord. If I had $100 for every Jacobin article I have edited talking about the Prices and Incomes Accord, I would probably have a deposit for a house. Um, you know, but like the Labor Party is just deeply sclerotic in Australia, and it's, 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 it's profoundly bureaucratic. Um, I could tell you a lot more about that, but like I, I have some comrades in New South Wales who are having a crack at, at agitating from within, um, and they're very sincere socialists. They write some of the most bitter critiques of Labor, but like just do not see this as a real possibility. Um, it's it's deeply deeply unlikely. And if and you know you look at the way the Australian Labor government has been positioning vis-a-vis -vis Palestine, um, you know, defending Israel down the line, like they they're refusing to do the most minimal things to address the cost of living crisis. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a Labor Party that's dead inside, and I don't see any life in any of the branches. Um, so I, my view is extreme scepticism towards any, any project that attempts to intervene into the Labor Party. The Greens are a little different, but they're very varied statewide, state by state. Uh, in Queensland, the Greens are more left-wing, largely because Queensland's a really garbage state, and that the, used to be run by... <laughs> Sorry, Queensland. Um, and, and the, the Greens there used to be quite moderate, and they just got thrashed over and over. And so like, they said to the, you know, the lefties in the Greens, like, oh, do you guys want to have a go? You know, we're obviously out of ideas. And so the Greens in Queensland were taken over by a small group of people who are basically socialists. Um, and the recipe that they put together is very similar to what Vic Socialist has done. We've sort of done them in parallel, interestingly, without talking to each other a great deal. Um, and they had a breakthrough win uh, in the last federal election. They went to zero, from zero to three MPs in Brisbane. Um, but again, putting together a door-knocking army, um, you know, mobilising people to help um, in, in local communities. So that's the good side of the Greens. The bad side of the Greens are the tree Tories, you know, the ones that own wineries, the ones that are architects, that have very progressive views, very progressive views, um, but, you know, have absolutely no interest whatsoever in, I don't know, like paying higher wages because then that might put their small business out. Um, so, and, you know, the Greens politically are, um, again, very mixed. Like on the left, you've got some democratic socialists who aren't very open about being socialists. You've got some uh, like anti-capitalist radicals. There's a, the Brisbane councillor, Jonathan Sree, is, is one of those guys. He's great. He's a really good activist, but his framework's a kind of radical left liberalism. Um, you know, very protest politics with a kind of a late 90s, 2000s flavour. So, like, he's a great guy. Um, you know, good leader. But then, you know, on the right, you've got, you know, your, your, the Greens are an institutional party on the right of the Greens. Um, and so it's quite, it's a complicated mess. And my criti critique there is I'm, I'm open-minded about the Greens in Queensland and I wish them well, but effectively they're not a socialist party. And I don't see how they could be transformed into a socialist party. Their advantage is, of course, uh, the establishment of a, of a major party, um, greater resources, um, those kinds of things. So that's an attraction, that's a real thing. Um, you know, but the fact that we are explicitly socialists, I do not think that hampers us. Um, I think the biggest thing holding us back is we're new and we don't have that many resources. Um, so anyway, that's the Greens. But in Victoria, I don't think the Greens are particularly left-wing. And largely because the activists who would power a Greens ground campaign have joined Vic Socialists. Um, so that's good for us. And then of course there's the right, the coalition, which, about which not much more needs to be said. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about that in the pub. The great thing about the coalition at the moment is they are pushing further to the right and there is not a single lower house seat in the entire country held by a politician further to their right. Like, you know, whereas they have lost, like, you know, something like a dozen MPs to, like, to basically the, the Teals, who are, you know, an independent, um, you know, like, classic liberal formation. Um, so the coalition seems set on a course of insane self-destruction, and I, I hope they continue down that path. Um, so there was nothing like Vic Socialists in, in the Australian political scene. So, we've, you know, there's a political argument there for it. Um, 
Now, the proposal to set it up um, was really based around a very concrete analysis of the electoral system and where there was an opportunity. And this is a big point I'd like to stress. Um, if you're going to do an electoral project, I don't know very much about uh, New Zealand's electoral system. MMP seems sick. Um, lack of preferential voting, uh, not sure about that. Um, wish we had MMP plus preferential, that would be you know, pretty damn good. Um, but anyway, um, we basically identified uh, an opportunity in Melbourne's north, the um, northern metropolitan region, um, which is a state upper house region. Um, for Australia to get into the federal Senate requires a much, much higher vote than we have at the moment. Um, that could be on the cards in five years. Like maybe, um, certainly, but like the, the, the model will, the model is almost always break out into the councils first, then state, then federal, and always in the upper house first, um, and then lower house. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, but they require some exceptional circumstance, um, like an extremely popular leader in a lower house electorate, etc. So um, there was a basically a strategy was put forward by a political journalist who I'm mates with, Guy Rundle. Um, he, he writes really well. He's the best political journalist in Australia. Um, he sort of sussed out that there was a possible opportunity for the socialists in the northern metropolitan region of Melbourne. Um, and so he got together three group, well, two groups and one person. Um, group one, uh, Socialist Alternative, uh, of whom I was a member until 2019. I'll say something about that in a second. Um, socialist Alternative are a sect. I mean that in a sociological sense. That's just what they are. Um, every sect out there has a different political culture um, and a different tradition. They're heterodox international socialists, for those of you in the room that know what these insane words mean. Um, um, the healthy part of socialist alternative is they have, uh, they have quite a lot of young members. They're very dedicated to activism. They like to be involved in things that are successful and that work. So they're not your world socialist website types who are just, you know, there's two of them and they think that is fine. Um, they, they want to be part of campaigns that are successful. When they do union work, they want that to be successful. So this is a healthy instinct for a group. They're very dogmatic intellectually, and they're, they're jerks. Um, so, you know, kind of hard to work with, but whatever. Um, at the time of, in 2018, I would estimate they probably had about 150 members in Melbourne, um, and maybe three to 400 nationwide. They're probably pushing about 500 nationwide now. Um, and Victorian socialists could, everyone on the left hates socialist alternative with a passion. Like, and kind of I can see why, because there's every, you know, if you're on the left, you'll have had a run in with these guys at some point, because they, um, they're, they're pushy, they, they argue hard, and they're, they're not particularly kind. Um, but the reality is, we needed their numbers. Um, without those numbers, it wouldn't have worked out. And what made it possible for them was they were committed to a, pro it's part of their politics to be okay with electoral interventions, they're revolutionary, but, um, you know, they see electoral work as, a part, as something that can be part of that. Um, and so given that, they, in the first instance, provided a lot of the activist numbers. There was also Socialist Alliance, who are an older sect. Um, they haven't grown in a very long time, but they had a little bit more electoral experience. Uh, Sue Bolton, who I mentioned, is, is one of their members. Um, and historically, they used to be a more significant group. Uh, and then there's Steve Jolly, who is on one of the leaflets that I put out. Um, used to be in the international Marxist tendency, but that sort of went you know, the way that most of these things do. Um, but he remains a very, very popular local councillor in uh, Yarra, which is in Melbourne's inner east. Um, he's the only, one of the only local councillors that I know of in the state that wins with a straight majority. Most others require preferences to get in. So, and because he's extremely hardworking. Um, and he has by far more experience in local council politics than anyone else in the socialist left. Um, he knows how to win things um, in that area. Like, he led a campaign against um, the East-West Link, which was a tunnel that was going to demolish you know, hundreds of ha homes and um, a, a very loved park. Um, and just he led that campaign and it was successful. That's the kind of thing that he's been doing for years. That's why he has such a base. So that, those three, or two groups and one person coming together, created a sense of left regroupment and this was an opportunity and a different um, project. That was important uh, in attracting left activists to the project. 
Um, it wasn't just the initiative of one group. It seemed like it was a new thing that had a chance of breaking through. But more importantly, there was a very realistic uh, strategic argument as to why we could win. And like, you can't convince people to do that kind of work unless you've got a case to say, we could win. So if you do have that case, and people understand it, um, and the kind of people who will be doing the electoral work are going to be political people who, who want to know the strategy, who want to be a part of shaping the strategy, um, you can convince them to do work um, if you've got a real, a real um, strategy. Preferential voting makes this easier. Uh, because we didn't need to, uh, it's not first past the post, so we're not sabotaging anyone's vote. We, you know, of course, we argued that people should put the um, right-wing parties last. Um, and then, as well, we were aware that if we didn't win, um, the uh, elect the political funding system in Australia has one progressive element, which is that if you break across, I think it's four percent. I can't. It's either three point five or four percent. If you get above that, you get funding per vote, and you get your deposit back. Um, that funding must be spent on another electoral campaign, but that meant having a successful campaign in 2018 would position us to keep doing that. Um, so we decided to come together and to um, run a campaign. So in the beginning, Victorian Socialists was an electoral coalition. That's how it saw itself and that's how it um, you know, I described itself and that is in effect how it functioned. It was different constituent groups working on a common project and then they'd go back and do their own thing. Uh, so in 2018, uh, we launched the campaign with a election manifesto, which was very well designed, and like, you know, you guys will be fine. Like, <laughs> seriously, like, you know, if you do this, your manifesto will be sick. Um, and about 400 people turned up to Brunswick Town Hall for, Town Hall for that. Um, so kicked it off with a bang. Uh, we uh, were lucky enough to get donations from a couple of unions who are allied to the Labor Party, but who were grumpy enough to want to chuck us, you know, 20,000 bucks, and cheers, comrades. Um, and what else? And then uh, over the course, we had about 750 volunteers on election day itself, um, but fewer volunteers over the course of the whole campaign. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we broke through the benchmark for funding. We got 4.2% of the vote, which is equivalent to about 18,000 um, votes in the north, um, in Melbourne's north. We hadn't yet expanded out to the west. So this was a proof of concept. Um, Victoria has a really arcane preference system, which is the bane of our existence. Like, every single time we've done this, we've come within a hair's breadth of getting it. Um, but, like, there's this guy called Glenn Drury who was known as the Preference Whisperer. Like, I shit you not. Like, it, it's really corrupt. It should just be illegalised. Um, but, like, who sets up intricate and, 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 you know, deeply unprincipled preference deals between very minor parties, which can see, like, you know, some right-wing weirdo with, like, literally 200 votes catapult over other people. Um, as it was, uh, in that election, we were uh, beaten to the post by someone who got far fewer votes than us, um, but who was part of those uh, preference deals? Fiona Patton, who's uh, the leader of the Reason, was the leader of the Reason Party, previously the Sex Party. Um, she's the political representative of the sex industry. She's like a, you know, a, she's bourgeois libertarian. You know, so you know, not really the main enemy, but not cool either. Um, but anyway, so that was disappointing for us. Um, but like the results of the campaign were enough to make to commit us to keep going. Um, then. Um, well, this is where things got a little bit interesting and where Victorian Socialists started to transform or transition between a coalition and a party. Um, and this part of the story is a little bit more about me. And I'm, I, I'm just going to be upfront about, you know, my involvement and so you can assess as to whether I'm grandstanding or not. I don't think I am, but, you know, these things are unconscious sometimes. Um, anyway, I got myself expelled from Socialist Alternative in 2019 um, because I supported Bernie Sanders. In reality, I was sick of being in, in a sect that was very dogmatic. Um, so I picked a fight over... They had a very ultra position on Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, he's just a tool of the Democratic Party and pro-capitalist, blah, blah, blah. I saw the campaign. Um, you remember that moment where he was speaking on a and a bird landed on his podium? 
and he just smiled at it. And like, and this guy is arguing for Medicare for everyone in the United States. I'm like, you're mad if you don't think this is a good thing. Um, so I picked a fight, got myself thrown out of social alternative, um, which is about time really. Um, it had been too long. Um, and so then my orientation was, well, Victorian Socialist is my party. Um, so I'm going to try and do whatever I can do to try and push that toward being a party rather than just a coalition. Uh, so I got together a group of independents as well as uh, Socialist Alliance um, to agitate for the things that would be required to transform a coalition into a party. Um, what that means was we had a program already, we had politics already, like broad socialism, basically, um, and a kind of a pluralistic definition of socialism because it was a coalition, so this was already good. Uh, we already had a membership base, but those members didn't pay dues. Um, they were uh, electoral members, so you know you have to get people to sign up to register as a political party. So the first argument we made was we need to transform this electoral membership into a dues-paying membership, and we won this argument. We introduced a, dues, a sliding dues scale, um, and that was you know obviously gave us more money, so we could do more things. But that it's also politically important because it, it, it means a real commitment to a political organisation if you decide to give them money. Um, it's pretty cheap, like you know the amount of people spend on beer is quite high. Um, we. Um, the party was already a democratic party with a one-member, one-vote model, so this was good. Um, but it hadn't met for a year. Um, no one had done anything for a year. The constituent groups just went back to their own thing. So we agitated for the party to start having meetings, just public meetings. Um, and this was also as the pandemic was beginning. So there was an urgent need to talk about this and to try and see what organising could be done, even though we were in lockdown. Um, we agitated for that and we got that. Um, and beyond this, uh, we argued that a party needs to have a bureaucracy. Um, you know, that's sort of a dirty word in the socialist movement. And like, let me put it this way, like, once we have a bureaucracy, then we will worry about bureaucratism. But first you need to have a bureaucracy. Um, so we argued as well that the party should start to hire organisers um, who could, and professionals. You need professionals. You know, you need people that know design. You need people that know data management. You need a treasurer who actually knows how to handle money and how to interact with, um, you know, funding laws and, and transparency laws. Um, we weren't successful in that argument, but we were successful in everything else. And that's where Victorian Socialists started to become a party. Now we do have um, paid professionals in Victorian Socialists. Um, that's a thing that, that we've developed since just by consensus. Um, at that stage, we didn't yet have branches, um, but the uh, party did organise campaigns around particular issues um, and start to create some of the political life and culture you would associate with the party. So, you know, these things were victories, I think. Um, and also, beyond that, I set up a short-lived caucus uh, called Socialist Unity to push for some of these things. Um, I mentioned that, you know, we basically achieved the goals that we set out to achieve, so it dissolved, um, but I mentioned that because it was an important precedent in that it established that VS is a multi-caucus multi party. Um, you can have different viewpoints on socialism, you could be in Socialist Alternative, you could be in Socialist Alliance, you could be, you know, the, the Communist Party of Australia volunteered for its last election campaign, you could be that. Um, you're welcome in Victorian Socialists as long as you agree with the overall program, you agree with party democracy. I think that's important because in in this world of many, many different left tendencies, um, which are very small, um, there are some that you probably can't work with, um, the most sectarian you know, ones that are just going to ruin everything, um, but the others, you need to find a model that, mean, that allows people to preserve the, the politics they view as important within a united project. So having a multi-caucus structure helped. We did have to have an argument, though, about one member, one vote, because at one point Socialist Alliance pushed for special voting rights for constituent organisations. Um, and, you know, I, I, myself and the people I was organising with um, agreed with Social Alternative on this, that uh, we're for one member, one vote. You know, you want to win a vote, bring enough people to conference. You know, if you can't, why should you have special rights? Um, so uh, those were the debates, and it was pretty fractious. Like, Social Alternative play hard. Um, you know, so, like, it took some guts to go through those debates. Um, you know, 
yeah, don't know how things are here, and I hope it's not that fucking, you know, stressful. Um, but anyway, it was stressful. The pandemic didn't help. But we came out of that uh, with something resembling a party. Uh, and then we went into the 2020 council elections under lockdown. So all we could really do is have online meetings and, and letterboxing, um, which we did. And that's where we got George Jokera elected. Um, so that was the first test post these debates. Uh, from there, there have been a number of um, other... Uh, camp, uh, electoral campaigns. Um, the other one worth noting is the May 2022 federal election campaign. Um, it's the only one we went into knowing that we weren't going to win. Um, and in general, I think that's probably not a great idea. Um, we went into it, though, on, for two reasons. One, we knew that there was going to be a state election campaign later that year, so it was a way to build the infrastructure and to test the infrastructure. So in the federal election we, uh, in, in May 2022, before the state election, um, we tested the different areas in, to see where we would get a good vote, to try and get our members um, used to volunteering again, used to talking to people again, to build alliances with community groups, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to build our profile. And we ran uh, Aram uh, Mivalganam, who was a Tamil refugee. And so we did it for a political reason. Um, you know, like Australia is barbaric towards refugees. And so we saw a, a big political value in running someone who was a refugee. Um, you know, it was, it was a political campaign. We knew we weren't going to win, but I think we, you know, boosted our profile and gained a lot of experience and knowledge from having done that. And then following that was the state election that I started the speech with. Um, so, uh, I guess the final summing up, um, where to from here? Well, we're in the process of redrafting our constitution. If anyone's interested, I have a couple of copies. Yeah, just to see what's going on, you know. We've got aims, we've got rules, you know. I agree with them. I drafted the aims. <laughs> I didn't draft the rules. Um, you know, we vote, we'll be voting on those in a conference in um, January or February. Um, you know, when we do these kinds of things, and this is what we did with the uh, state election platform as well, like, typically the leadership will commission a number of people to draft, um, and then we'll distribute something that, uh, a document that the leadership approves of, we'll distribute that to the members and take a, you know, open up a process of feedback, consultation, etc, etc. If uh, members have feedback that the leadership agrees with, we incorporate it into our proposal. Um, if we don't agree, members can campaign for that and uh, move an amendment, move motions of their own at the conference. So, you know, those kinds of processes uh, are an important part of party democracy, um, I think. Um, we've also opened three public electorate offices. Um, on, uh, in Brunswick, in Preston and in Footscray, um, on major streets uh, with major signage, um, and they're basically campaign centres. So, you know, they operate outside of election campaigns. We have bookshops, we run fundraisers, we have political meetings there. You know, if an activist group needs somewhere to meet, they're very welcome. Um, that's really important because it, it gives you a presence. Like, having a lo an actual physical place matters. Um, you know, it means you're a part of the suburb and a part of the neighbourhood and a part of its political culture. Um, so I think it's really good that we've, um, we've done that. Um, we've uh, set up campaign committees, which are effectively branches. They meet once a week in those three areas, um, and they choose which um, camp local campaigns they'd like to be involved in. Um, sometimes they do political meetings or educational meetings. Um, and we're gearing up to run in the council elections next year. Um, we're aiming to run in as many councils in Victoria as we can, although we will prioritise the councils that we think are the most winnable. And then our mo more ambitious goal, the next major election is the federal election. We want to run in every electorate in Victoria. And I think we'll be able to do that. And I think we'll get across the line for funding in the majority of them. Um, and, you know, this baby is not that relevant to you guys, but uh, one of the advantages of doing that is it strengthens your hand in negotiations with other parties. Um, in a preference system, you have to negotiate. Um, there's a kind of, you can be a purist socialist and say, no, it's unprincipled to do it. Obviously, we don't talk to the right, um, but we will talk to Labor and the Greens. And if you can say, well, we'll give you 1% in some far-flung electorate where we won't get anything in return for your 1% in the inner north, great. That helps to get a socialist elected. You have to be able to do that kind of thing. Um, 
So that's the uh, goal. Um, lessons. Really quickly, why do electoral politics? Uh, it builds a mass audience for socialism. There's like tens of thousands of people who have voted for a socialist party. There's a cohort of our voters who have only ever voted for a socialist party. Um, this is really important for us. This recruits people. Like we're close to a thousand members, dues-paying members now, um, in Victorian socialists. This builds the movement. It doesn't detract from other forms of campaigning or struggle, but it strengthens them. Um, when there is a strike or a picket, our members will go and do whatever is required to support it, um, to join the picket or to raise funds for a strike fund. You know, when an issue occurs in the world, for example, the war in Palestine, um, we will mobilise for it and we'll, we'll get the word out and help with that. So having you know, a political, like, electoral focus does not detract from these other things. And when you start to have MPs, those MPs' offices can become activist centres in their own right. Um, of course MPs can propose reforms, and if you can win them, that's fantastic, that's an important thing to do. We shouldn't look down on that, but you know, really the main game, I think, is building, is contesting bourgeois political hegemony. Um, starting to articulate a broad socialist project that appeals to hundreds of thousands of people, um, ideally millions of people, that can say there is an alternative to the way that the system works, and you can be involved in it, and you can help to make it happen. And I think this can only really be done on the scale of electoralism, because the fact of our society is politics focuses around parliament. We don't like this, and it doesn't mean we're, parliament, we're parliamentarist. But even if you're an anarchist and you reject parliament entirely, you're still rejecting parliament. It's where politics is. So we have to fight on that terrain. Um, you, know, this, you have to take seriously the possibility of, of electing people who will then sell out. Um, my advice on that would be elect people that are real comrades that have been around for a very long time, who have been tested in struggle, who you, you really, you know, you know, they're not in it for themselves, um, they're not egotists, um, you know, they're serious, they're, they're committed. Um, but there's no guarantees, you know, like at every stage of our movement there will be mistakes we can make. Well, you know, I want to be in a position where it's possible to make those mistakes so that we can try not to. Um, so, you know, and beyond all of this, it, it trains people so well. Um, in, in the work that's re uh, required to be a socialist activist. Um, so I've already said, develop an, ambi an ambitious and realistic plan, run to win, detailed knowledge of the electoral system, and experience grows. It doesn't matter if you don't have all of this knowledge to begin with, but you know, knowledge and experience grows. Professionalism grows, so there's a struggle to professionalise, and we're still trying to do that. Um, door knocking and mass engagement, and then I think it's important to see it as a long-term project. Um, I want to finish with one story um, that goes a bit further back than Victorian socialists. Um, I was at Occupy Melbourne. I got myself dragged off by the cops. Um, you know, it was fine. Um, I, I don't know. Like, Occupy Melbourne wasn't really my flavour of things because it was very anarchist, but, you know, so there's a half socialist and we didn't like the consensus-based decision-making. The other half of the anarchists who, you know, wanted to do the twinkle fingers and all that kind of business. Um, and it didn't, you know, Occupy didn't go well. But immediately after that, there was a strike at a chicken processing plant out in uh, the western suburbs, um, the Bayada plant. And the union involved, uh, the NUW, National Union of Workers, they've, current, they've since amalgamated, they're now the United Workers Union, um, organised that strike and they put a call out to the socialist left to say, we want community support to help back this picket. And this factory is, is brutal. Um, like a, a month before uh, the strike, someone had been pulled into one of the machines and killed. Um, at this factory. Like, they, the bosses there took people's passports for them. Like, it was overwhelmingly non-white people that worked there, like Vietnamese people, North African people, people from the Middle East, um, you know, and, and the union had been doing some very detailed long-term work to build consensus for a strike, um, but they needed to, for the picket to work, they needed community support. So I was there, um, you know, we, we staffed at 24 hours a day alongside um, a lot of the workers there, and I remember, it's kind of one of the, the highlights, you know, the, one of the coolest things I've experienced. Like, I was really 
you know, it was wonderful. Um, you know, one night we were there, um, the picket line was maybe three or four people deep. Um, you know, like there was a socialist I knew on one side and this tiny Vietnamese woman on the other side. Um, and then we got word that, like, the cops were going to try, come and try and break the picket line. Um, and they attempted to drive a police truck through the picket line. Um, they ran over someone's legs um, and that guy went to hospital. But then, you know, something changed and I saw the police start to freak out uh, and they retreated. And it's the only time I've ever seen the cops retreat like that. Um, and it was really disorganised. They were kind of, some of them were panicking, others were trying to have a go at it, you know, pick a fight and all this kind of shit, and we pelted them with trash as they went off. Um, afterwards, I realised, I spoke to one of the organisers, and I realised what he'd done is he'd gotten the biggest guys from the factory to hold in reserve so that when the police started to break through the line, they charged them at them. Um, you know, and the police freaked the hell out and backed off. And the next day, we turned up to the strike, and uh, the construction union had built a scaffold over the um, entrances, and it won. Um, you know, like each day that that strike happened, it cost them millions of dollars. Well, that was years and years ago, well before Victorian Socialism exists, uh, but 6% of people in that electorate voted for us, and I am almost certain the proportion of that factory would be much, much higher than that. Um, that's the kind of vision for mass socialist politics that I think we need to build towards. That was Daniel Lopez of Jacobin and the Victorian Socialists, Thank you so much, Daniel, for your keynote lecture and company. That was also a bit longer than 40 minutes, so thank you so much, Plains FM, for allowing me to play the whole lecture. I wasn't sure that I'd be playing that lecture, actually, so I haven't asked Daniel to select a song. Sorry, Daniel. In lieu of whatever his selection might have been, here's the Hungarian pro-workers song, and I'm going to butcher this, Mienka Fold, Mienka Gya, Ours is the Land, Ours is the Factory, and I've chosen that because of Daniel's work around the Hungarian philosopher Georgi Lukács. Előre 
That was Minka Fold, Minka Gya, Ours is the Land, Ours is the Factory. So it's time for a couple of resource recommendations. And first up, it's the 2023 film The Old Oak by the English director and screenwriter Ken Loach. Here's a wee clip from the film's trailer. We've been in this village all our lives, and we're supposed to share it with that lot we don't even know them. Thank you for your kindness when we arrived. I really appreciate it. My name is Yara, by the way. What's yours? Tommy Joe Ballantyne. Do you mind me asking? Are you all right? Set in the present day in a once prosperous, now impoverished mining community in the north of England, the old oak starts with the arrival of a busload of Syrian refugees. Put really simply, the community is not welcoming of the refugees. People jeer as the bus rolls into the village. They make racist comments, and some eventually retire to the local pub, the Old Oak, effectively to lament the loss of white Britain. A broken camera brings refugee Yara into contact with publican TJ Ballantyne, and what follows is a story of solidarity based on the belief that those who eat together stick together. If you're at all like me, you will need some tissues on hand, because the Old Oak depicts both the best and the worst of human interaction the will to generosity on the one hand, and the tendency to close ranks on the other. Also, if you're anything like me, you will come away from the old oak wanting to buy a pub and or embroider a really sick banner. Yes, it's quite sentimental, but for its message of solidarity across borders and cultures, I give the old oak four red stars. Next up, it's the 2020 novel Rat King Landlord, by the Aotearoa New Zealand author and advocate Murdoch Stevens. So Rat King Landlord is set in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington, and essentially the novel is about a trio of flatmates who find out that the rat, who is living in and off of their compost, has actually inherited the title to their home and is now their landlord. And this is not just the case for this particular trio, because all across Te Whanganui Atara, literal rats are becoming property owners and actually learning to communicate with renters and property agents through various emoji. The so-called summer of love that brings the rat landlords to the city also sees a series of seditious posters plastered up and down the main streets calling renters to take down, in a night of riotous fury, first property managers, then landlords, then even owner-occupiers. Rat King Landlord is of course satirical, and truly some of the novel's inventions are very funny. For example, the local coffee shop, the Broviet Brunion, very hard to say, where renters in black congregate and conspire. The novel does, however, feel less like a novel proper, and more like something that a university drama society might stage, or a university magazine might serialise. Speaking of which, I actually came to Rat King Landlord because it was earlier this year that Renters United collaborated with the Lawrence and Gibson Publishing Collective to produce thousands of copies of Rat King Landlord to share across the country for absolutely free. The special Renters United edition is printed as a tabloid newspaper and it contains the full novel and 16 original illustrations by well-known New Zealand artists. 
It also includes additional resources and information for renters. I truly believe that Rat King Landlord is better suited to the tabloid form, four red stars for that version, and three for the paperback. If you want to get your hands on a copy of the tabloid version, email CanterburySocialistSociety at gmail.com, I suspect we have some copies left, or head to rentersunited.org.nz. You might like to head there anyway. Right, so that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Things are starting to quieten down for the year, but I do have one special event to plug before I sign off. On Wednesday, December the 13th at 6.30pm, the Canterbury Socialist Society is hosting a very Merry Quizmas at Space Academy in St. Asif Street. The CSS quiz mistresses are back by their own demand. So that's me, Courtney Fraser and a disembodied Hayley Rout. We'll be bringing you an evening of Christmas cheer. There will be six rounds of six questions spanning politics, music, sport, film, geography and more. And there'll be prizes for teams that place first, second, third and second to last. You can register a team of two to six people or you can register as an individual online. We do encourage you to register so that we can keep an eye on numbers. In order to do that, just head to Facebook and search A Very Merry Quizmas by the Canterbury Socialist Society. The quiz will start at 7pm sharp and it will wrap up between 8.30 and 9pm. If you can't find the event on Facebook or you'd like more information, again, please send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. We'd love to see you there. So that truly does bring us to the end of the episode. I'll be back after Christmas, can you believe it, but before the new year. In the meantime, think about joining the Canterbury Socialist Society or a Socialist Society local to you. You can head to socialistsocieties.org.nz to do that. Stay safe. Stay happy. Ka kite anō. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.